We have uh, with us today uh, Sam Ugisha. So here with us for Mother's Day. Anybody, uh, free cup of coffee who, where you can tell me uh, where the first Mother's Day in the United States was celebrated. Come on, men. Just kidding. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was the, the Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia. And uh, do you know that the woman who started it grew to hate it? <laughs> she did. She thought it had become commercialized, and she was very angry and upset uh, toward the end of her life. That, and she should have copyrighted it. So there you go. But we're happy to have Sam with us. Sam and Jackie and their three lovely daughters have come to us from uh, Rwanda. And uh, I thought it would be really great to have a conversation with Sam so that y'all can get to know him and uh, just talk about uh, ministry and, uh, and the like. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit who is with us. And we pray that uh, you would be with us in the midst of this conversation, that it might draw us closer to you and that we might be made more and more into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Sam, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, uh, how you got Jackie to fall in love with you, uh, things like that. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for this opportunity and also to say thank you to all of you. Uh, I am the second born in a family of uh, six children. We were born in Uganda where our parents came as refugees from Rwanda back in 1959. They sensed a genocide coming many years before and they left. So they met in Uganda. We were born there. My dad served at the cathedral, St. Paul's Cathedral in Kampala for 51 years. So coming to the advent and Moving around feel, makes me feel like I'm back into the cathedral. The cathedral we have back in, in Rwanda is not as big as this. So I, I really feel at home here. So during my time in Rwanda, uh, I had an opportunity. I had a scholarship to go to seminary. So I went to seminary from 96 to 99, and I joined ministry, but in between then, I, I used to serve at the church part-time. That's when I met Jackie, my wife. Uh, I met her in the choir. I was serving as a student, but I was also in the choir. Did and you join it because of her, or are you just because you wanted to serve? Uh, I think maybe both. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I... I I had, <laughs> yes. Well, I, I was born in the cathedral and I was part of the choir, but later I realized it was not my calling <laughs> because uh, every time I try to sing, I feel like I don't have enough air. So I said, I think I'll do something else. So we we met with Jackie in the in the church. They didn't have many members in the choir, so I volunteered to be one of the choir members. And I saw her, and I didn't say anything for like two years. I, I was a student. I was not sure of who she was, and I really didn't want to cause. I think there are many girls in the choir 
I didn't want to cause any stampede. And <laughs> so I, I took it easy and, and I prayed over it. And I, I realized that she was the one. And, and I think the Lord has blessed us. Yeah, well, tell, us tell us what you told her on your first date. Uh, your first date? Yes. Yeah. Well, on the first day, I told her I wanted her to be my friend. He was How'd that phone. go? <laughs> he was on the phone. I couldn't face her. It was tough. So I told her I wanted to be a friend, and she said, yeah, you can be one of them. <laughs> I said, I want to be a special one. And she said, well, we'll see about it. And back home, when you propose to a girl, uh, even if she says yes, you have to go to the family. If the family says no, if you are clever, you move off immediately. Because without the family, you can't do the marriage. So I talked to her, and she said, I think it's okay, we'll see. And we went to the family, they said yes. And well, she took long to say yes, even after. But when the family says yes, then she said yes. So we had, we had a wedding in 2001. The 23rd of June, we had a wedding, and it was really a beautiful wedding, having the whole, back home when you have a wedding, everybody comes, the whole cathedral, all the families, all the friends, and those who don't know what happened, they come, so <laughs> it's a big thing, but the good thing about it is that everybody supports your wedding, so you have more than you need, so anybody can be there. And it's really been a joy. The Lord has given us three daughters. Yeah, we lost our first baby due to a medical problem. But the Lord has helped us to heal through and start a new life. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about, I mean, a lot of, most people, uh, when, um, when you say Rwanda, they immediately think of the genocide and the Don Cheadle movie, Hotel Rwanda. But when um, the colonial powers were leaving Rwanda and handing back over power locally, uh, even beginning in the 50s, uh, as you said, your parents could already see that, that there were some bad things happening. So they moved to, to Uganda, and there you were in Uganda. Uh, and but then after the genocide, when there was really nothing left in Rwanda, I mean, uh, millions of people had died, uh, why in the world would you go back. Yeah, we were born in exile, so we, we really didn't know Rwanda. And when we were in school, the children would tell us, you are Rwandan. And we were like, who told you? Well, we had Rwandan names. Our parents gave us Rwandan names, and we spoke our language at home. We only spoke the language in Uganda when we were out of the home. So I speak four languages from Uganda. And we, everybody knew when they read your name, they would know you're not from here. So they would sometimes say mean things to us as children. So when we come home, we would ask our dad and our mom, like, why, why are we here? If we are Rwandan, why don't we go to Rwanda? And then they would say, it's a long story. <laughs> when you tell a child it's a long story, then you should really tell that story because... The long stories are the best. 
So we were told that from when we were like four, from kindergarten until I nearly reached university. They're like, it's, it's very complicated. So that made us to research, to find out, and that made the desire to go back home really strong. Most of the people of my age, they took up arms, they joined the army, and they forced their way into Rwanda. It happens that the genocide was on, and they stopped the genocide. Uh, one of them was my big brother. He died in the war, stopping the genocide. But there's, there's that desire that comes from from knowing that you have a right to something and you don't have it, I mean, you could stop everything else and go for it. Mm -hmm. We wanted to go to Rwanda at any cost, and we felt we must. Mm -hmm. So immediately after the genocide in 1994, the genocide ended on the 15th of July, 1994, but I was in Rwanda on the 10th of July. Well, it was still going on the other parts, not in the capital city. So I managed to get my savings, get on the bus, and go to Rwanda. Hmm. And I, I started a new life there. Yeah, and uh, remind us how many people died in the genocide in Rwanda? Uh, I think nobody really knows exactly, but it's, it's thought to be more than a million people because people died everywhere in 100 days. It was organized for a long time. It was so systematic. And I think the, the devil himself was present because every neighbor killed their neighbor, including their children who they thought looked more like Tutsis. And even those Hutu people who were not for killing, they were all killed. Even those people who were looting and they thought they na their neighbor had looted more they killed their neighbor to take away what they had looted. So I think evil was, was highest in our country in this century more than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I know it's happening in some other places, but I think 94 was the worst for us. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what was the source of the tension between the Hutu and, and the, the Tutsis? Because I know that, I mean, for some of them, that to look at somebody you couldn't necessarily tell but you so when they would show their ID card it would say that and that might mean their their death but what was the source of tension between I think the source of tension comes back from the colonial time when the French people the Belgians and everybody else who had interest in in Rwanda uh, realized that all the African countries were getting independence so the king and the chiefs, they said, we also need independence. So they say, if we give these guys independence, that means we are going home. So they say, no more kings, no more chiefs, we need the majority. And then the majority, we are the Hutu people, so they say, now you guys, you're going to have a republic, remove the king, and get rid of all these guys. That brought all the tension, all the hatred, and I think that made life complete. Mm -hmm. I mean, very different in Rwanda, and everything changed from there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell us a little bit about the ministry 
What was ministry like? I mean, going back to Rwanda after all of that, because even though the genocide had stopped, it's, it's not that easy to stop hate in somebody's heart. Well, I came into Rwanda in 94, as I told you in July. I had just finished my, my degree in mechanical engineering. Originally, I'm not, I was not a, uh, I didn't know I would be a pastor. I, I had done mechanical engineering. I worked for about two years. I know machines. I, I love them. And I think, I still think engineers are really smart people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do you know about sound systems? Uh, <laughs> I did mechanical engineering. So I do things that move or do something, and sound doesn't seem to move to anywhere. Right. So mm -hmm. I don't know electronics. So when I came in 94, I lost all my mom's family. My brother, I looked for him, he was gone. I had uncles who joined the army, they all passed away. I was in Rwanda when it was still fresh. I got so depressed, I got so bitter, I got so angry. I think I lost all the Christianity I had because I felt like, I felt like killing somebody but I didn't know who to kill. But you know, when you hate, when you hate, when you're angry, when you're bitter, it's not a part-time thing. It's a full-time thing. And it consumes you and leaves you empty. I really thought I was empty. I didn't want to go to church for the first time ever. And then one day I felt like I really need to go to church. I think something is wrong with me. And I went to a Catholic church because I didn't know where our church was. And I was disappointed because when I went to the church, we had Holy Communion and we got the bread. And we didn't get the wine. <laughs> I thought they would have another round for it. And then I saw the Catholic father drink all of it. I was like, what's going on? should be the body and the blood. Well, I didn't go back, so I was like, whatever. And then in those two years, 95 to 96, I was not happy. I took a decision to quit the job and go back to Uganda because I was so depressed. I didn't have a friend. I didn't know anybody. I had gone through every hospital looking for my brother because they said, if you don't see him, then he should be somewhere, either lost his legs or... So I went through hospitals. That's the worst thing you ever do, to go through a hospital after a war. I mean, it smelled terrible. People there, you can't know everybody. Everybody looks the same. No legs, no hands, no face, no. Well, I walked through and I gave up. But because after the war, everybody is so thin, everybody looks like, everybody looks alike. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you realize that thin people look the same. <laughs> and everybody looked like my brother. So I had to look so mm -hmm. closely and I didn't see, I didn't see him, so I gave up. So. I went back to Uganda in 96, and 
I felt the Lord call me to know him more. I felt the Lord talk to me that I should start a new life. I went to a youth camp. In this youth camp, they, the preacher preached on John 15, 5, that without Christ, you have nothing and you can do nothing. You're like a branch, dried up, ready for fire. And I think I was dry, I was ready for fire. And knowing him is starting a new life. And that's how we bear fruit. I mean, that was my message. And I said, I'm not going back to Rwanda. I stayed in Uganda. I met a friend who gave me a scholarship to go to seminary. But I had about three people who had been telling me to join ministry independently. And then I had somebody offering me a scholarship. So I got the scholarship. I went to seminary. I went to seminary with my own agenda to find out who is God. Does he really love? If he loves, does he care? If he cares, what happened to our country? I came out with a few answers. In seminary, they taught so much, but I had my own syllabus to find out who God is. Mm. And I realized that God is God. You can't ask him why. I realized that we are called to trust him and obey him and live according to his will. I realized that God is not like a bishop who sits in his office there. It's not like a man like we can ask. God is is an amazing person. He's bigger than you can think. You don't even have the right to stand in his presence and ask. You can only bow in his presence and obey him for everything he does. I felt like the Lord had renewed me. He gave me a new heart. And I wanted to go back to Rwanda. I went back to Rwanda a new person. And I've been in ministry since 99 after seminary up to recently when I came here. The same parish, the same people, they have loved me, I think, more than I've loved them. Hmm. And the Lord has transformed our country from ashes to things that we can't believe. Our economy is the best in that region. Our security is better than yours here. <laughs> I'm serious. You can't believe this, that people who have lost people, people who are killing, they have been forgiven out of prison, and they are building houses for orphans, for widows. People have repented. There's a man who was released out of prison, and he said he didn't deserve forgiveness. And he said he didn't even have the courage to come out and see the people he killed, their families. He was an old man. And they dragged him out of prison because they said he had to leave. The president gave a special presidential pardon for all the sick, all the old people, and they were released. They had to bring him out. He had a heart attack, and he died. Well, many people said, well, he was old, he was traumatized. I was like, 
I think it's, it's not the trauma. It's not the old age. But when you repent, when you feel you did something bad, sometimes you need the grace to accept the forgiveness. When you don't have that grace, you can kill yourself because you didn't forgive yourself. I think that's what happened. He was forgiven, but he didn't forgive himself. And I think that's happening in many people's hearts and We've seen a country come from ashes to a new thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't say, I can't say it's our president, it's our soldiers. I think the Lord is working in that country and is working through his people. And I'm just waiting to see what else is going to happen uh, because we have another important session coming on. Uh, we pray that the Lord will continue to lead our leaders and and give them a heart of a servant leader. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, your, your studying for your D-Men uh, Doctor of Ministry at Beeson Divinity School. You're with us for a year. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what it is th that you're studying, the question that, that, that you're researching. Yeah, I, I felt like coming back to school to to renew my, my biblical understanding, but also to do a research that I felt is very important for me, but also for our upcoming generation. Rwanda is a country that had a very powerful and successful, I would say, revival in our region. There was a revival that spread in that region, the East African revival in 1959 into the 60s. So many people repented. So many people became Christians. It went into Tanzania, to Uganda, to Kenya, to Burundi. And there are these people who became brothers and sisters, and they started churches. What surprises me is that it happens in Rwanda, but the hatred grows, the division continues, and there are blessings all over, and nothing seems to be happening where it started. And a few years down the road, you have a genocide. You have a revival, you have a genocide, and right now you have a renewal. I really don't understand that. So I've really been wondering, what didn't we do as leaders then? What didn't the church do as, as church people then that caused this? What are we doing now that is going to help the next generation not to go into what happened in our time? So my desire is to find out what happened to our revival. How can we start another revival for the coming generation to be a blessing and not to see the horrors we've seen? I, I really feel like that is what I want to see mm -hmm as I study and to see, uh, put together some recommendations that could be helpful into our coming generation to lead a new and continue the renewal that is on. Yeah. Tell us a little bit, you, you mentioned that there's a, a lot of renewal going on in the church in Rwanda. What is, what's going on in Rwanda to make you say that? Yeah. You know, uh, when you see people 
going to church and people starting churches in their, in their homes, seeing more people uh, become committed, seeing more people uh, come out to do something for somebody, it makes you realize that there's some other uh, power that is behind all this. People, even the government themselves have been saying, you pastors, you call people and they come. We call them, we need the police to run around and, and chase them here. So why don't you help us and talk to them about this, this, this? People are going to church more than they have ever mm -hmm. gone to church. There are more denominations coming on, which shows you there is a hunger, there is a thirst in the people's hearts to know who is this God? What's going on? One of the things that I was doing is hospital ministry, and I was amazed to see how many people are coming in to support people in hospitals. I also did uh, prison ministries. Our prison has so many people. But the chapel I used to go to has about 1,300 inmates. I don't think you have people coming to church that number. Mm -mm. And what amazes me is that you would stand there and everybody is singing. I mean, the power of the singing and the worship, you forget it's a prison. So the next Sunday I went to church and I told my congregation, I said, you know what, you people? The people in prison sing more powerful than you. <laughs> Their worship is more joyful than here in the cathedral. I mean, everybody looked at me like, how do you compare us? Well, I was really amazed at how these guys were praising. And when you see people coming out of prison, the ministry that is in prison has transformed so many people that when they come out, everybody in the village knows. And they are giving testimonies of those people coming out of prison of what they are doing. Mm. So that shows me that there is something amazing happening in our country. Mm. And I think and I pray that this continues. <clears throat> Carl Bart was once asked, what's the easiest congregation you've ever preached to? And he said, oh, that's easy, prisoners. He said, you don't have to convince them they're guilty. <laughs> so, well, very good. Well, I want to leave a, a lot of time for, for questions. I'm sure that some of y'all would like to ask Sam some questions. David Green. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for being here. So it sounds like over the past 21 years, from 94 to today, there's a lot of positive momentum going in Rwanda specifically. But, you know, zooming out to Africa, you've got radical Islam, Boko Haram, and that kind of thing going on. How is that, I mean, not to rewind back, but is that a threat to Rwanda and also, you know, the whole continent? I mean, what's the take of, you know? Uh, the... This is so amazing that the relationship with, uh, with the Muslims back in our country is good. We have, uh, the cathedral is here. The next fence and beyond is a Muslim place. There is a project called Samaritan Pass. Do you know it? Mm -hmm. Where you put gifts in boxes and you send them. We received so many of those. 
and I'd like to thank most of you who've done that. Part of those gifts, nearly half of them, go to the Muslim children. They come to our church, they know me, we play football with them. Our relationship with the Muslims back in Rwanda is so close because we've come from too much of a darkness that nobody wants to mess again. But of course we've had the fundamentalists in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Uganda. Rwanda is a country that has come out of trouble, so we know nearly everybody. We know our neighbors. We have a day once in a month when we all meet and we do cleaning. So we have to know you. If you live in that house, we know you, we know your job. And if you really don't want to know anybody, then you're calling everybody to know you. <laughs> because then, why? Why don't you come? And what are you hiding? So the Muslims, the, the Christians, we know each other. One of my, uh, most of my days when I was free, I would go to work with the Muslim people, the cleaning, and they know me. And uh, we have a driver who was a Muslim man. He drove one of our trucks, very honest, very friendly. We knew his family, we supported them. And they, they know me, I'm a pastor, and they, they respect me for that. We, we don't see any threat for now, but we see the threat in the neighborhood, and whatever is in the neighborhood, soon it may be into your home. So we, we are praying. And our, our, our security is very sensitive, and our people are together. Uh, they are looking out for that. But it is a big threat in the neighborhood. You spoke about hatred being a full-time job and, and how you were freed from that. But I also thought I heard you, you know, that fear of the genocide or the, the, the sin in us all coming back and how you're fighting that fight. Is that, did I, did I hear you right, that you have that fear of an, uh, another genocide possibly happening? Uh, well, a genocide is possible if the same hatred is given the opportunity and is given the flow. Because a genocide is people being told that that person is not a person, that person is a snake, that person should die, that person should not live for a long time. I mean, you just do it, because that's what you know. But uh, for now, I don't think it's uh, something that can happen, because our leadership has put in a lot of effort into reconciliation, into rebuilding. If they were to do it, they could have done it then, I don't think they're going to do it now. But the coming generation, the children that we have, it is our responsibility to protect them and to prepare them and to lay a good foundation for them, not even to look at it as an option. Because this is something that you're given by your parents. It's not something that comes to you one day. So I don't see uh, that coming, but if you really welcome evil into your home, I mean, he'll do anything to you. Uh, 
Thank you for being here, first of all. But uh, if, if, if you had the power to have access within the United States, both to our government as well as to the church, what would you want us to be doing in Rwanda? Wow, that's a powerful question. Uh, I think what I would ask would be to partner with you in a way that is, uh, I mean, just like you partner with a friend, not partner with us as business or as, uh, as people who are above us. Why do I say this? Because during the genocide, when the genocide happened, most of the people from the West, they got their dogs, they got their cars, dropped the airport, there was a car waiting. It took everybody from their country and their dog and their cat and they left everybody else behind. I think that was really terrible. That somebody could just leave you knowing you're going to die and they just say, I'm sorry, but I have to go. But when you have a friend, he says, this won't happen to you. We are together. So I pray that you guys would be our friends and not business partners because a friend works with you. Even if it means to die with you, they do. But they also protect you from what they think is bad. And I know the U.S. had the power to stop this if they could, if they wanted to. Because if my dad saw it in 59, the ambassadors saw it. The Catholic Church in Rome saw it, but they didn't do anything. So we are really craving for friends who love, and they love sacrificially. Sam, I'm so glad you're here. It's just been great hearing from you. Um, based on what you just said, how would you relate that to what we're not doing for our fellow Christians who are being persecuted right now over in the basically the Islamic countries? Actually, that, that makes me really guilty because sometimes I post things on on Facebook and I think I should be posting more about that, although I don't think it has any impact, but I think when you say something, it has an impact. Uh, I think we are guilty. We should be doing more. But we should not be doing it now. We should have done it long ago. Because most things, you don't catch them there. You start before they come. I've realized something in your houses, and I really love it. You have a smoke alarm. <laughs> you have sprinklers, and you have, how do you call them, these big pipes outside that have water? Hydrants. Hydrants. I think America, as a strong country, you should have a smoke alarm. You should have those sprinklers. You should have those hydrants everywhere you are. Because many things don't happen when they happen. They've happened long before they happen. So these Christians are not being killed now because somebody woke up and felt like killing them. It started long ago. Sometimes if you didn't do it then, 
you may not do it now because it's like gone. So I pray that we together see what is not right and we stop it. And I would like to say this about this country. There are things that are not right that you should be stopping now before they reach at a point that you may not be able to stop them. Thank you. Sam, so what's after the year here? What is next? Are you going back to the cathedral in Rwanda? Uh, when I finish here, uh, I hope to be, I have two opportunities that I may be doing. One is to work with uh, one of the bishops, uh, of course, in, in our province, or work at a coordinating office called the provincial office. So uh, I am not sure exactly, and sometimes when you're a pastor, things can change, things can be different. But I, I know the Lord has something good for me because ever since I accepted to serve him, it's been like surprises. Yeah. So one of them has been this one. I, I didn't know these guys. I just, I just came here and you guys loved us. And we have really been challenged. It's amazing that people don't know you and they love you. I mean, that moves you to another level of service. Thank you. Jackie, uh, how are you and the girls doing yeah, in do you like, country? Do you like surprises? <laughs> <laughs> we are all doing well. <laughs> well, you will see, uh, we're going to start getting Sam. Uh, Bishop Sloan has licensed him, which means he's allowed to function in the diocese, and we'll be getting him uh, up in front of y'all, and uh, you'll see him there uh, on Sunday mornings. I think in a couple weeks' time we'll have him leading worship. So, Okay. Well, let's pray for the Mugishas and uh, for, uh, for God's church. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, this is your church, and you promise us that the gates of hell won't prevail against us. And so, Lord, we entrust uh, the body of Christ to you. Uh, we pray that you would put a hedge of protection around uh, those in harm's way. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, move our hearts to a place that we might be willing to speak up uh, where evil is being done uh, for Sam and Jackie and um, their beautiful daughters. Uh, we thank you for them, for bringing them here, that, Lord, that this uh, time in the U.S. would be a time of, uh, of great fruit uh, in their lives. Uh, Lord, use them uh, as we bless them, but, Lord, also as they bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. They never clap for me.